Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I'm the managing editor of Providence. And today I'm speaking with Joseph Lacante. He is the director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And today we're going to be talking about the Iron Curtain speech, officially known as the Sinews of Peace speech, which was given on March 5th, 1946, 75 years ago. And so Winston Churchill gave this speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri. Winston Churchill was serving as leader of the opposition after losing the UK general election in 1945. And as I said, the speech is known as the Iron Curtain speech. It's where we get the term special relationship to describe the US-UK relationship. For some people, it starts the Cold War, though some of the dates vary, but this is one one possible official start to the Cold War. Well, first off, thank you so much again for joining us today. And my first question is, could you describe the speech's historical context? Yes, Mark, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me here. It's an amazing moment in American diplomatic history because remember, the Second World War has ended, 1945, in the fall. So here we are just a handful of months later in 1946. United States, the Soviet Union, and Great Britain had been allies through the Second World War in defeating the Nazis, defeating the Japanese. So here are these triumphant allies in 1945, a few months later now, 1946, and Winston Churchill is warning about a new threat, a new totalitarian threat, what he describes as the Iron Curtain. And I'll read you the lines here uh, from Churchill because they are. Uh, they're, 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 they're so remarkable. It's such a turning point, in, in a sense, in world history. A shadow has fallen upon the scene so lately lighted by the Allied victory, Churchill says. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. He's talking about the European continent, Eastern Europe, now controlled, effectively controlled by the Soviet Union, Western Europe still liberal, democratic, and relatively free. Who could have imagined that kind of division of forces and ideologies uh, once uh, the Second World War had begun? The, the nation that had been our ally, the Soviet Union, engaged in this fight to liberate the European continent, is now engaged in a real sense, not in a liberation but in a, in a complete domination of half of that continent. And Churchill is really the first statesman. This is the, this is the important thing about Churchill. He is the first major statesman to acknowledge what has already happened in Eastern Europe. Not what's going to happen, but what already has happened. No one has really the backbone, uh, the, the gumption to say it. Right. And talking about the gumption to say it, like I know... Uh... In hindsight, we can kind of look at this date and be like, well, of course, we're going to have a Cold War that's going to happen. But there is, I've noticed, like some some hints in the American public opinion that that might not be the case or not, Americans may not realize it so much. Yeah. And I, you know, thinking specifically about in Providence, we publish and comment and analyze old articles from Christianity and Crisis, usually around the 75th anniversary. And this is a publication by Raihon Lieber, who is a Christian realist, uh, the father of Christian realism, according to many. And uh, when I read through some of these, like some of the some of their policy prescriptions seem uh, seem kind of odd because there's some in 1945. There's one piece I found that talks about, well, can we have an alliance with the Soviet Union or should we have an alliance against the Soviet Union? Yeah. And I think that kind of 
it kind of forgets that the Soviets have a choice. They have a vote in whether or not they're going to be our friend or our adversary. <laughs> and uh, and actually, I found the only only piece in 1946 that I could find that mentions Churchill's uh, speech here at uh, Westminster College is from April when Reinhold Niebuhr called it, quote, ill-timed and ill-advised. And so looks like Reinhold Niebuhr was not a fan of the speech. So yeah. could you give us kind of a review or kind of what was the public opinion in America about geopolitics at this moment? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Mark. Here's where, here's where as an historian, we, we want to walk as much as we can into their world, into the world, particularly of the Americans and the Brits at this moment. So they've, they've fought this, the bloodiest war that civilization has ever faced, the Second World War. The Brits have been through six years of war. We've been through four years of it. It's engaged our, our national economies. It was an existential battle, wasn't it, for human freedom. We're decisive uh, in, in our victory. And yet of, you can easily understand why both Americans and Britons would be war weary, war weary. You, you finally defeated the Nazi menace, both uh, the fascist menace, the Japanese, the Germans, and the Italians. It didn't take too much to, to defeat the Italians. That's another story. Uh, but of course, you're war weary. And no one wants to be now engaged in another ideological conflict or, God forbid, another military conflict. So it's a very natural reaction to say, look, the Soviet Union was our ally during the war. Why would we want to pick a fight with them now uh, in 1946? Uh, we have no stomach for it, no resources for it, no national will for this thing. And so what Churchill is doing is, he, once again, he is going completely against uh, the conventional wisdom in, in establishment Washington and probably in establishment uh, Great Britain as well. He's against the grain. But once again, uh, he has a much more realistic grip on the situation than his critics do. And I have to say, Reinhold Niebuhr also does not fully appreciate what has happened behind the Iron Curtain? What has happened to Eastern Europe and the in the absorption of those countries uh, into the Soviet fold? Well, that's one of the nice things about going into these primary texts to see what people were actually thinking at that actual moment. Exactly. Instead of asking them, what were you thinking five, ten years ago? Like, actually read what they wrote in their diaries or op-eds or whatnot. Exactly. And so what role did this speech play in shaping U.S. opinion? Because obviously, if Reinhold Niebuhr is having to talk about it, even though he clearly doesn't want to, he still has to mention it, it seems to have had some impact on what Americans were thinking and talking about. Well, this is where historians are going are to part company. They're going to have a real debate on this, which is fine. It's a good, healthy debate, Mark. How much did Churchill's speech initiate the Cold War? How much did it accelerate the Cold War? I'm working on a book project on this right now on Churchill, Stalin, FDR at Yalta, 1945. The Yalta meeting was their last wartime meeting of the big three in 1945. They haven't yet won the war, but they're confident they're going to. Stalin made a whole host of promises. Uh, in 1945 at Yalta about democratic freedom in Eastern Europe and all those countries where the Soviet army uh, had occupied. He was promising free and fair democratic elections in those countries. None of that happened. Uh, virtually every promise that Stalin made at Yalta, he broke. And that's becoming uh, um, clear to <laughs> most people who are, uh, I would say, uh, uh, politically awake and morally sane, it's becoming clear to most people by 1946 that something's wrong 
in the in the Soviet bloc. Something's desperately wrong in Eastern Europe. The expectations are: wait a minute, why isn't Stalin uh, fulfilling his promises? The and that creates a kind of disillusionment because I think what Churchill's doing is he's as I as I said a minute ago. He is underscoring the reality. The problem now is there's a disillusionment going on on the American side. Stalin had been built up as Uncle Joe, a, a, an aspiring Democrat who would love to join the United Nations and be a force for good in the world. That's Franklin Roosevelt's doing. That's part of Roosevelt's legacy is setting up the American people for a deep sense of disillusionment. But now FDR is dead and Harry Truman is in office. And Truman was by uh, uh, Roosevelt's side throughout the throughout the the, the uh, Second World War. So Truman has a much more realistic perspective uh, on the situation. It's Truman who invited Winston Churchill to give the speech, the Cold War speech, uh, over there at Westminster College. Can we blame Winston Churchill and that speech for somehow accelerating the Cold War? My response to the story would be absolutely not. Churchill has brought to light the situation and is now uh, alerting statesmen to, uh, to the danger, to the real danger. And this wasn't one of my original questions, but do you think Truman knew what Churchill was going to say? Like, I would <laughs> guess he would, but I haven't really thought about it in that angle. Well, uh, Truman was asked, of course, after uh, Churchill delivered the speech, was he aware of the speech that Winston Churchill was going to deliver? They had traveled by train together from Washington uh, out there to, to, uh, to Fulton, Missouri. Uh, and they clearly did discuss the speech. Truman knew exactly what Churchill was going to say. But when he was asked that question afterwards, he dissembled. He said he was not aware of the speech. So Truman is aware, again, the American people were not prepared for the speech, for this message. And it was not well received in the American press at all. Uh, Walter Lippmann, the very well-known uh, journalist, very influential liberal journalist, also called it, like Niebuhr, uh, especially ill-timed, uh, a mistake. Uh, it was savaged by uh, other, other press, the Chicago Tribune, uh, the New York Times, etc. But as usual, the liberal press got it wrong. Let me point this out here, uh, Mark. Uh, at almost the same time, our chief diplomat in Moscow, George Kennan, this is when Kennan sent to, sent to the State Department from Moscow his quote-unquote long telegram laying out his vision for a doctrine of containment, containing the Soviet Union because they were going to be needed to be contained because they had visions of global domination. That's George Kennan, our chief diplomat, and that telegram arrives literally within days of Churchill's speech. So if anything is affecting American foreign policy, <laughs> it's it's the message from Kennan in our own State Department about where the Soviet Union is. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how, I mean, I hear speeches or read the transcripts of speeches all the time. And so my guess would be uh, a speech by itself isn't going to start the Cold War. There have to be facts on the ground that yeah. correspond with it. Exactly. So Churchill briefly talks about the special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. Now, this relationship has not always been sunshine and lollipops. During World War II, some British complained about American troops being overpaid and over here. Uh, later, um, after this speech, when uh, Churchill was prime minister again, he and Eisenhower 
butted heads a bit over Egypt and the Suez Canal before the crisis there. Yes. And so yes. with you know Eisenhower being antagonistic toward colonialism and Churchill defending it. So one of my questions here is, was there a risk that the special relationship would fall apart the same way that the American and Soviet relationship was going to fall apart? And it seems obvious now, in hindsight, that the U.S. and U.K. would work together. But was it always so obvious in 1946? Excellent question, Mark. I don't think it was obvious in the sense that it was not clear at all to most Americans that we were going to bind our political future to that of Western Europe and the protection of Western Europe. That's what Harry Truman set out in, his, in the Truman Doctrine. And once we set that out, once we established that as a national priority, that we are going to defend Western Europe against the Soviet Union, that's the great enemy. Now, Soviet communism, not, not the Nazis, they're defeated. Now it's the Soviet Union. Once we decide to establish NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and the Marshall Plan, the economic bailout of those West European countries, then it becomes obvious that Great Britain is going to be a crucial partner in all of these endeavors, in NATO, in the Marshall Plan, in the defense of Western Europe. Britain will be our most important and reliable ally. Churchill sees that, I think, with a kind of foresight and almost prophetic quality that others don't. I'll read you a few lines from Churchill in his speech, if I could, because it is, um, it's just so remarkable, I think, the insight he had into the shared democratic traditions of the United States and Great Britain, why that was so important for world peace. He says, we must never cease to proclaim in fearless tones the great principles of freedom and the rights of man, which are the joint inheritance of the English-speaking world and through which the Magna Carta, the Bill of Rights, habeas corpus, trial by jury, English common law find their most famous expression in the American Declaration of Independence. And then he closes, here is the message of the British and American peoples to mankind. So you see what he's done, Mark? He's taken this great political, liberal democratic tradition, starting really with Great Britain and the Magna Carta, English common law. He's traced it to the American Declaration. In another place, he called our declaration the third great title deed in the great title deeds of human freedom, the Magna Carta, the English Bill of Rights, uh, and the American Declaration. So this joint political inheritance in liberal democratic values, self-government, government by consent of the governed. Churchill is absolutely convinced these two great democratic states have to work together uh, to resist Soviet communism. And he's, and he's absolutely right. They do. I know earlier you mentioned the quote about the, uh, let me pull it up here, the, the, where the Iron Curtain is coming down. You mentioned that quote here. And in that, I think right afterward, it talks about how, uh, you know, the communist parties, um, which were very small in Eastern Europe, he's saying they're coming to preeminence far beyond their power and numbers and that they are seeking to obtain totalitarian control. Yeah. And quote, uh, police governments are now prevailing in nearly every case so far, except in Czechoslovakia, there is no true democracy. And so could you describe a little bit of what was going on behind the Iron Curtain? I know you've alluded to it, but what are some of the different things going on? Yeah, and I want to I want to also commend, if I could, I happen to have it right here, uh, Anne Applebaum's wonderful book uh, called Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, 1944 to 1956. She's a terrific scholar, Anne Applebaum. It's a wonderful book, and it really describes the systematic takeover of these East European governments with these active minority parties, communist parties, in the way that they infiltrate the propaganda, the way that uh, democratic opposition will be muzzled 
or sent out to concentration camps. Poland is the classic example here. Poland was the country that uh, was really under fierce discussion and debate during the Yalta meetings because the invasion of Poland, of course, in 1939 is what started the Second World War. Now we have a Poland in 1945 that uh, has been uh, invaded, liberated, supposedly, by the Soviet Union, the Soviet army. Well, the Soviet army is still there in Poland. So what's going to happen to the Polish government? The Polish government that has been has been in exile fighting for its democratic freedom. Stalin promises explicitly at Yalta, Poland will have free and fair democratic elections. That doesn't happen. The Polish democratic opposition is taken out, shuttled off uh, to a prison camp in the Soviet Union. That kind of thing is going on in these other East European countries as well. Uh, East Germany, of course. Eastern Germany is occupied by the Soviet army. Western Germany occupied by the United States, Great Britain, and France. So that country is divided down the middle by the time you get now to 1945-46. Berlin itself is divided. The city of Berlin is divided. Eastern Berlin is Soviet communist. Western Berlin, United States, Great Britain, and France. So this division is, is happening. Uh, it's happening within weeks after the close of the Yalta Conference in March, uh, February of 1945. So by the time you get to 1946, there's been a greater and greater encroachment in these countries and the takeover, the effective takeover of those countries by these minority communist parties, all supported by Stalin, all supported by the Soviet Union, getting their marching orders. Like, so what did Churchill want out of this? Like, what was his end goal? Like, I think we can kind of guess, like, you know, he wanted the... U.S. and U.K. to work together, but like, what were also like some of his views on strength and weakness, and how should the West respond? You know, Mark, it was not obvious at all in 1946 that the United States was was going to commit itself to the defense of of Western Europe. That was not obvious. If you think about what happened during the First World War, um, after we defeat Germany, the United States does not join the League of Nations, doesn't sign the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, doesn't really get involved in European affairs in any major way as the two great totalitarian ideologies begin their march through Europe, communism and fascism. So the great fear that Churchill has is it's going to be a replay. (laughs) The United States is once again, okay, declare victory and go home. Um, But he's desperate uh, to avoid that scenario. He, He desperately wants the United States to commit its military, economic, moral resources to the defense of Western Europe and to trying to contain the Soviet Union. That was not a a done deal at all. So that's going to mean the practical sharing of information. Uh, Churchill really wanted the United States to share the latest nuclear secrets with Great Britain. We did not. They they would go on and develop the bomb on their own. It was a friendly relationship, but even there, it wasn't as friendly as, as Churchill would have wanted. But he certainly wanted a sharing of military intelligence understanding what's, what the Soviet Union is up to, where they are, um, uh, and of course, a, a, a diplomatic friendliness where there could be these off-the-record um, conversations about American policy toward the Soviet Union, uh, toward the Eastern Bloc, and a, and a collaboration, if you will, uh, when, there, when, when tensions arise, when there's a crisis moment. So, for example, when the Soviet Union decides to blockade West Berlin, all traffic into West Berlin in 1947 to try to force the Allies out of West Berlin. The United States and Great Britain are working in tandem on that to to pull off this amazing airlift 
320 some odd days or longer of continuous round the clock air support, getting food and fuel uh, into West Berlin. That is an American British venture. Uh, so exactly the thing that Churchill wanted was that kind of co- collaboration in a moment of crisis to stand down the Soviet Union. They did it. They used soft power to do it, but it was a tense moment, and we really needed the Brits with us on that, and they were. And so what do you think is the uh, long-term legacy of this speech? Fabulous question, and I think we're, I think we're still going to be unpacking it. Here we are 75 years later. Um, I think it, it drew clearly... Uh, the picture of the of the world in which the United States and and Great Britain um, had to face as allies, they had to face a world of great ideological div- uh, divisions and great ide- ideological threat from Soviet communism, and Churchill's understanding about the need to project power and strength, not weakness, and to have a military uh, preparedness that reflected that willingness uh, to stand up to Soviet communism. Churchill's understanding of that as a statesman, I think the lessons echo into our own day. You had to show strength and resolve on the ground, in your public pronouncements, in your diplomacy, in your economic aid. You had to show strength and, and, and resolution in the face of tyranny. And so that that alliance, the cementing of the alliance of the United States and Great Britain, uh, you, you can really argue that the great triumphs that we did experience through the Cold War in checking communist aggression and then finally bringing down the Soviet Union, it was in part the result of that Anglo-American special relationship. I don't think you could really explain the dissolution of the Soviet empire without it. That's, that's quite a legacy, if, if I'm correct, if the, if the American-British relationship was that important to the end of the Cold War. I think it was. That's quite a legacy. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today and spending time to talk to us about this very historic speech that, you know, it's something, it's not an anniversary. I think a lot of people are noticing the same way you would notice like the day of infamy or the end of World War II or the dropping of the bomb, but it is still a very, very powerful historical moment for the United States and the you know Western world in the 20th century. Thank you, Mark. Great to be with you. Thank you.